So standard disclaimer, let's move into the presentation. <clears throat> so I wanna talk about uh, how tighter conditions are cooling the economy and also why it might why it's not such a bad thing, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly if it leads to a softer landing and helps central banks avoid uh, further rate hikes. Um, I think the debate on soft versus hard landing continues, but uh, the reality is it's not really debate. I think people have really moved to uh, the position where soft landing is more the rule uh, than the exception right now. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of uh, sloppiness that's going on, but um, you know we're, we believe that the reasons, uh, the tighter conditions are real and evident. You can see it in a lot of uh, different uh, places. One is obviously the lag effects of uh, the interest rate hikes we've had over the last couple of years are still working through the system. You know, had oil moved to $100, uh, moving towards $100. You see the exhaustion of some of the excess savings. The employment numbers are starting to show, show some cooling. Uh, student loan payments are starting to kick in. The uh, Some of the government uh, giveaways that have gone on in the last couple of years are uh, starting to hit. You have labor strikes and labor wage increases and a government shutdown likely. So uh, while soft landing seems like the most likely scenario, uh, you have to really be careful about pricing things into the market today. So let's jump into it. Before we do, we have a special event on Thursday this week at 1 a.m., which will be recorded and posted on our website for replays. It's a uh, call with Ed, Dr. Ed Yardeni um, to give you a sense of uh, Ed's views. He's at the beginning of the year was calling for 4,600 on the S&P, uh, got close to that already this year, and now he's calling for 5,400 by the end of 24. <clears throat> he thinks that we may see the Fed pull uh, uh, what people don't believe they can do, which is a, kind of an immaculate landing here. So it promises to be a really good call. So uh, feel free to jump in if you'd like. It's uh, He has been as right as any strategist, uh, I think, for the last several years. And uh, uh, really fascinating views of the world. So we have a big, big week coming up with uh, for uh, interest rates. We have these central banks uh, making decisions. Where uh, the OECD came out today and was uh, suggesting that uh, we have to keep rates at an elevated level. And in, in uh, uh, Europe and Japan and, and the UK, consider raising rates. Uh, still, I think the US is going to look at a hold. Um, but we're our view is, and one we've talked about for a while, is we're going to be at higher rates for longer than the market is expecting. The market, and I think the central banks are still calling for cuts next year. Um, and the market's looking for up to 100 basis points of cuts in the U.S. I don't expect that to happen. I think you'll see rates holding at these levels unless there's a real problem in the global economy, um, which we don't really foresee right now. But um, policy mistakes, whether it's uh, geopolitics or uh, monetary or fiscal policy could uh, be ones that create a problem for us. <clears throat> I want to take a look at a couple different areas of the world, uh, starting with uh, the ECB in Europe and then jumping to China and then coming back to the U.S. Um, this is the ECB's views of the world and uh, from their latest report, and you can see uh, they're looking at uh, growth continuing to slow this year into next and then uh, picking up. And you've seen them decline their numbers from the June. Uh, so slower growth, uh, slower trade, 
uh, slower foreign demand in the euro area, and also CPI going up and uh, export prices uh, still uh, having some shifts there. So not a great setup from, from that perspective. And this is another look at the views of Europe from the rest of the world, from, uh, within the ECB, from the European Commission, from uh, consensus of economists, and then also a survey of forecasters, the IMF and the OECD. <clears throat> the OECD came out with uh, some uh, lower projections for the world for next year. The only, uh, they had China declining, Europe declining, with U.S. growth uh, rising. Um, I think that's fairly consistent with the views that we have at ARS. What I think is important is uh, there is a steady view that uh, inflation is going to miss expectations where it will be um, a little bit more pressure on the upside than people think, and growth is going to be a little bit challenged than uh, we previously thought. And I think this is going to be part of the uh, challenges that we see going forward. We're at one of those points now where the economy can flip one way or the other. And uh, I think Europe is going to be one of the areas that is um, fairly vulnerable to that, particularly if we see a move up in inflation on the headline side. So I think Europe has some challenges. Germany is, uh, has some issues. The European auto industry has some issues. China has excess inventories that they are because their own problems not being able to move into the global, and they'll start moving that into the global economy. I think that has some negative implications for the largest um, industry in Europe right now, which is the auto industry. And you think about the vibrant industries of uh, Europe from the years past, it was uh, the autos and the financial sector were two of the big drivers, uh, as well as the industrial base. Autos are going to be uh, struggling and we know the problems the banking system has there. So I think that's a problem for Europe. China and their problems is another problem for Europe as uh, their reopening hasn't been what everyone expected. So with China, we know the property woes, we know their demographic woes. I actually will be coming back with a uh, report out of a professor out of the University of Wisconsin who thinks the uh, China demographics are even worse than everyone thinks um, by a, a multitude of, uh, Degrees that I think is pretty fascinating. We'll come back to that in a future meeting. The IMF is now asking China to start to focus on stimulating the domestic economy, which has big implications for the global trade in the rest of the world as they become more inwardly focused, which is part of what's going on right now. I think the big issues, and this is the real where the real rubber meets the road, is I think that, that China's place in the world was on a steady path for partnership and moving forward. And they've done some things that have derailed it, and we helped. I mean, the, clearly, the Trump administration accelerated the global fragmentation with our approach to China's, uh, which can be viewed as very heavy-handed. It certainly was by the Chinese, although it was giving the Chinese back some of the medicine they've given the rest of the world. I think this is a big issue for Europe. It's a big issue for the global economy. But I think it's the real issue for China is their model is now being questioned as a viable alternative to the West and particularly to the US. I think what's going on with Russia and North Korea and uh, the partnership that they're developing um, doesn't have China as, the, as this meeting came out of the last weekend. It looks like they're kind of moving away from China as the lead, even though China is the dominant uh, player in there. How they work is gonna actually really, uh, I think how the Russia North Korea relationship evolves. Does it bring 
maybe North Korean soldiers into the war? Does it bring just arms? How far does that go? And what pressures does that put on China and their agenda? Because I don't think Russia and North Korea have the same goals that China does. I think this is a really fascinating element of the global geopolitics right now and how that unwinds is something to see. I, there have been some improvements in the Chinese economy and their numbers. Um, that was a little bit stronger. Their uh, PPI was a little bit better, but I don't think it's a, da- I think it's a data point, not, not, a, not yet a trend. And we have to see what's going on there. I also think there's some really interesting internal dynamics in the Chinese government as you've had some leaders, uh, some pretty senior people, whether it's in the military or other areas, suddenly have uh, go missing and have shifts in personnel. Um, we're moving from the public sector of uh, the Jack Ma going quiet to now moving it to the uh, government side. And I think that's uh, a really interesting shift there. But I think don't count China out, but their problems are real and how they're exporting those problems to the rest of the world uh, is something that we all have to keep an eye on because I think this is one of the big areas to be worried about. But China has some levers to push. They've been lowering uh, Uh, their reserve requirements. They're trying to do very targeted things to stimulate because they're dealing with massive debt issues and they're dealing with a weakening currency, which sometimes they want, but they don't want it to go too far. One of the things they are doing is exporting deflation to many parts of the world. But I think the China dynamic right now is one that's really fascinating. I think you're going to see people move too far to one side of the boat and discount China for where they're going to be. I think that would be a mistake. But certainly in the intermediate term, in the near term, they're going to have some challenges that they have to work through. And I think they have the wherewithal to do it. But some of the policy mistakes they've made in the past are going to be with them for a while and will slow the China economic miracle for an extended period. So I think this is one of the big challenges for the global economy because their reopening didn't fuel the global growth the way they thought. The question is, do they pivot back to more of a traditional growth model to stimulate things and deal with the debt issues and other issues at a later date? Governments tend to do that when things go bad. And right now, the number one priority, as it always is for China, is social stability. And I think that's where uh, their big concerns are. (coughs) Excuse me. I think the other element for China right now is you're seeing a massive desire for capital outflows and how they control that is going to be a big part of I think the future, which brings us back to the US and we believe, and you've heard this from me for some time, that the US remains the the magnet for capital and should continue to do that. Our interest rates are fairly attractive relative to most advanced economies. And that is uh, a favorable thing for us in the near term. I think the rate environment for the US will remain fairly attractive as I don't believe we're going to see much movement Plus or minus where we are in the 10-year, I think, is a reasonable expectation of 25 to 50 basis points, unless there's a real problem in the global economy. We still see the Fed, and we think you'll hear from Powell, the fight's not done on inflation, but they are seeing improvements in that area gradually. Although there are elements, whether it's the uh, growth we're having or the strong employment, that are continuing to create some of the inflationary pressures but there are plenty of potential drags on the system, which we'll touch on in a minute. You see credit tightening, quantitative tightening is real. Um, You know, the lending is starting to slow and rates at these levels are restrictive after you've come off zero interest rates for an extended period. 
So we see inflation slowing, but cost of living is going to be more persistent. And that's what people are going to adjust to. And you're starting to see that in a shift in some of their spending habits now. And I think that's going to play out. And companies are going to have to react to this um, as we see things evolve. I think globally, the politics of the U.S. and the upcoming election are starting to be a factor now. And you're starting to see that and how it plays out. If you're in Russia, uh, you would, I think the view is you'd much rather deal with a Trump administration than a Biden administration. So will Russia move quickly to try and resolve a conflict in Europe or will they wait 12 months to see how the election plays out? I think these are real factors that we have to keep in mind. I think you're seeing a couple areas of tightening that are doing the job for the Fed. One of them is the balance sheet reduction that's going on. And I put this chart going back to uh, the beginning of 2020. If you took this back to the beginning of uh, 2000, what you'd really see is uh, a decade from 2000 to 2008, where you had uh, the Fed balance sheet below a trillion dollars. And now you're looking at a $9 trillion uh, leveling off at around $8 trillion. I expect you'll hear the Fed will continue to keep uh, pressing the balance sheet down. Um, we're now at $33 trillion of debt uh, in the U.S. Uh, we've moved from 32 in three months. So the Fed has to keep an eye on reducing the balance sheet. But they also have to keep an eye on where interest rates are, because that's going to be crippling for them if rates continue to push up. So what we think you'll see is instead of a move up in rates, you'll see an extension of the levels of interest rates and probably a shift in the dot plots, if not at this meeting, at the next meeting from the Fed, where they'll shift the dot plots up with fewer cuts coming in 2024 and maybe pushing out the cuts into late 24 and 25 is one of the elements. You're also seeing mortgage rates, and this is mortgage rates going back to the 60s. And what you can see here is even if we push up to where we are now around 730, it's very low relative historic rates for that entire period. So we don't see this as a big negative. It's a shock in the intermediate term. But over the long term, we think we're in a shift back to a more normal environment or uh, the shift from PIMCO's new normal to the new old normal is what, how we would characterize it, uh, where you're going to see rates at a different level. I also think you're starting to see something very interesting at the pump and the gasoline price moves up are actually starting to shift spending from, uh, it's taking away spending from other areas. When gasoline prices move up, we tend not to reduce our demand for uh, gas much in the US. And that means that the higher prices crowd out other consumption and that will mean other areas will start to see some push down. So I don't have a chart for that, but that's something to keep an eye on. Elevated gasoline prices um, are spending only drops if you go back 20 years, I think we've had about a 200% increase in oil prices and a only a 12% decline in demand for that 200% increase. So don't think these uh, moves up in oil prices now are going to drive a slowdown significantly in our use of uh, at the pump of oil. It will change our spending in other areas. And I think that's something to keep in mind. So potential drags on the economy um, and this is uh, an issue that's come up from Paul recently. Um, student loan repayments are starting, but there was some prepayment of them uh, so that people weren't uh, too out of bounds last month. We see about 100 to $150 billion of money uh, going into that area. 
I think that is a potential drag, but maybe not as much as everyone thinks. I think the auto strike has potential to be a, a drag in that um, not only you're looking at significant wage increases for the union workers, which is only about 10% of the economy, but when you see that, that does push up wages around the rest of the world, particularly at uh, the types of heights there, heights that they're requesting. <clears throat> I think increased capital requirements that Jamie Dimon's called on is a big negative for banks, is a drag on the economy. The government shutdown is obviously one we can't help ourselves. And when you think back to the Fitch downgrade, it was the the gymnastics that the two parties have put forth over the last couple of years in government shutdowns and the way they've managed the crises has been really off-putting. And I think that's been one of the challenges. It makes it hard for policies. It makes it hard for people to make good decisions when you're dealing with you know these threats and shutdowns. And then you see the changes where aid is ending that uh, from the fiscal stimulus that could impact you know, over 70,000 healthcare providers in the US. So these are all strains that come into the global system. So how do we see the world as we, as we face? Steven, uh, Steven can, you, can you speak speak to that last bullet again? How, where is that stemming from exactly? So, yep. Uh, 70,000 healthcare the, the, the aids that we were giving, all the stimulus that was going into the system during the pandemic, is starting to fade. And that's actually one of the areas where they're pulling some of the stimulus away from. And it's the excess support for the pandemic that's starting to go away. And that is one of the problems that we're seeing in the system. So I'm gonna do something I don't normally do here, but I wanted to give you our take and then show you an example of how we're implementing it. But we think that inflation is easing, but it's not easing to a level that the Fed can start making cuts. So we think then that means rates will peak and will remain at levels higher for longer than people expect. And that is gonna be something that requires an adjustment. The policymakers don't have the wherewithal to keep re-stimulating the economy. So they need to avoid a recession. And this is where the markets and the central bank are not aligned. The markets wanna see continued stimulus so that we can keep the, the punch bowl going, but the, the fact is we don't have that much in the tank that they can keep throwing money into the system to re-stimulate if we have a major decline again because of the cumulative effect of the crises we've been dealing with over the last 15 years. We still think there are big opportunities though in the markets because this is a pretty negative kind of view that I'm having, but we see opportunities and they're gonna be very different than what we've had the last couple of years. And I think this is a fundamental shift that you're gonna have to see where productivity and earnings are gonna matter as opposed to the opportunity and the total addressable market and all the things we've talked about. So you can't overvalue the qualitative, the quantitative matters now. And I think with the IPOs that are coming out, it's going to create more of the quantitative message than we've had in the kind of the private space over the last couple of years and over the last decade now. And I think, Joe, this gets to one of the things you were highlighting is there's gonna be much more real math around the businesses that we're investing. And I think the shift in, and the, the move into the public markets um, for some of these companies like Arm and Cart are actually going to give better price discovery for the world. And that'll give us a better sense of where we're going. But uh, whether it's in the public or private space, the quantitative matters now more than it has uh, with 5% interest rates than it did at zero. And I think that gets to uh, the other point Joe was making earlier, which is the talent gap 
Um, people haven't experienced 5% rates in their lifetimes for many of the managers in the markets today. And I think that is a big issue that we're going to have to face. I think the conditions still favor equities over fixed income. That's a view that uh, Bridgewater's been out with recently. Ray Dalio was quite strong on that over the weekend. And while there is a lot of concern about the debt levels and also the deficits, um, for the U.S. at least, we can monetize the debts um, through uh, the same type of stuff we've been doing uh, because we have a reserve currency. It becomes more difficult for other nations. And I think this is one of the Achilles heels of, of Europe. Um, their construct of a monetary union with, uh, without a fiscal one is a one that hamstrings them uh, from moving forward. And I think we're going to start to see greater strains in the European system, particularly as their leading industry uh, remains under pressure for some time. So I think the shifts that are going on are going to be quite fascinating. So this is how we're playing it uh, today at ARS. And um, you know, my partner, Sean Lawless is, uh, is known to many of you. He runs this uh, strategy for us. We take uh, a couple ETFs and invest them. So I'm often asked, well, what are we doing to back it up? So I wanna show you in one strategy with using uh, seven or eight exchange traded funds that we are playing AI. Um, we don't believe that AI is as actionable right now. It kind of reminds me of uh, the internet when it first started or block, uh, blockchain when it was first rolled out. There was a lot of excitement, but then you have to figure out how it really works. I think we're in that phase now where we've gone from the uh, the announcement to how do we practically use it phase. So we're at 20% in uh, tech through semiconductor and the broad tech area. Um, but we think that AI is really going to be played out through company by company or industry by industry plays is how you're going to really win in that area. Um, we think the infrastructure plays are still at work and it's going to be going on for a decade. So we have about seven and a half percent allocated to that. We have a big overweighting in energy because we think the energy transition is going to be one of the key elements to how we move this. So we have a broader energy exposure uh, with Phil, and then we use the XOP for oil and gas. Um, we like the mining area. We think that's critical to how everything's going. And if you think about the market exposure to metal, metals and minings, it's around 4%. We're at 20 um, Aerospace and defense, we're well overweighted. That runs about 3% weighting in the S&P. And then we have a nice uh, position in agriculture and have a healthy cash position to deal with what we expect is high heightened volatility as we head into the end of the year. So I wanted to just back up our views and what I talked to you about with how we're actually managing money so you can get a sense of, of we're actually walking the talk and uh, when we talk about the things we talk about each week. So Mark, I'm going to stop there and open it up for discussion. Questions, comments? I have, I have a ton, <laughs> but I won't take all the time. Um, as usual, all right, go for it. just fantastic work there. And I thought it was really telling he's got, they've got the majority of exposure in things that are where there's unit growth, organic growth, not financialization of profits, but actually unit growth and inflation sensitivity. And I think that says a ton. You know, Joe, it's interesting because when I heard you talking in the 1030 to 11 about the shifts that you're seeing in the private space, I think we're getting back to fundamental investing uh, again. And, and moving off of zero interest rates has been the driver for that. 
And there is a mental adjustment that the market is struggling to make because we're hopeful that we're going to see rates go back significantly to lower levels. And we just don't see that happening in the world we're living in today. And if you go back historically, and Edgar Denny will talk about this on Thursday, he thinks that the the, the four and a half percent to five, six percent ten-year treasury is what is normal. Mm -hmm. Seen is not normal for the last 15 years. And you know, when PIMPCO came out with the new normal, they were dead on. But we are moving back to what I consider the new old normal because it's not going to be the same because of AI. And I think the big issue is going to be how do we increase productivity, which has been declining for the last several years, mm -hmm. to offset the problems that exist in the world. And that means tech has to move from a, a sector to a way that everything's done, and the way we live, work, learn, and govern is driven is where tech comes through. And I think that's the driver. Well, gosh, Stephen, I'd love to just this is financial porn to me. I'd love to just you and I to talk, we can talk for hours, but um, oh, by, by the way, Joe, you just mentioned in London, we found in our fun fact round, uh, the person who invented the, the, the term food porn. <laughs> That's cool. Well, Stephen, another way to turn that uh, and just to put a little buzzwordy a phrase around what you just described is, you know, the, the themes and theses, which is plural for thesis, I guess, I had to look that one up has largely been FOMO for the last decade plus. And people would get excited about something, a theme or a thesis, but it was still a tailwind that was largely fueled by easy money, right? And there has to be a cost to, to the capital, whether it's debt capital or equity capital, and both of those collapsed. And we have a whole generation of investors that only know how to operate in this almost zero cost of capital world. And the disruption of that at simultaneously when even the old economic tools, uh, consumer-based economies is, is slowing down for all the reasons you touched on, right? Higher energy prices is going to accept uh, uh, impact consumer behavior elsewhere. And then consumption comes from younger people largely and household formations and, and the demographic issues. And those don't look good around the world virtually where we've had consumerism, whether it's Europe or China. Um, and so, yeah, there is so many legitimate fundamental headwinds but in an environment where so many investors don't even understand how to do fundamental analysis. And yeah, I, I think you're positioned in a, in a public portfolio from my perspective, I think you're spot on and you guys, you guys, you guys are clearly know what you're doing. Thank you. I, if I were still running money, I'd do almost the exact same thing in that sort of allocation. Now the, the hard part is what sort of nominal returns do you expect from that allocation? This is where I start making the case for the private markets is a better place for better nominal returns. You, you built a really nice risk-adjusted return portfolio there. I think that makes a ton of sense. Question is, what will be your expected return from that portfolio over the uh, near to, or let's say intermediate term, screw the near, screw the near term? Well, I, I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to have those projections for anything today because, okay. uh, because you're starting at a 5%, right? Interest rate environment. And just to, you know, put it in perspective, we used to use 8% as the return on the S&P since the start. Really? And and with zero interest rates, that eight percent moved up to over ten. It got pulled forward. All right. those returns so, got pulled forward. So yeah. I, I think both the private and public markets saw a uh, an expansion of the actual returns versus historic. So I think everything's coming back down. 
Yep. I think we'd be moving back down to more of historical norms uh, on the outlook for the markets. Although I would say that in our experience in the past, when we we were uh, in a similar low growth environment that we think is going to be going forward um, back in the early 2000s after the tech bubble and a differentiated portfolio then could produce significant outperformance. And yeah. I just think this one could produce significant outperformance, but the market was only doing two or 3% returns back for, for most of that, you know, right. 2001 to 2007 period. Um, so we were able to generate ex excess returns over that Um this portfolio that I was showing did, um, uh, we started this in 2017 and it's produced just under 14% returns since then. Ooh, ooh. Uh, so, you know, we're oh, pretty oh. healthy returns. I, I think that's gonna be what we see going forward because your interest rates did help. Um, but I think this is a portfolio that should outperform. And I would say for most people, um, this is so complementary to your existing public market portfolios, that it does make a difference um, to allocate, shift some into something like this, because most of them are closet indexers anyway. I couldn't agree more. No, yeah, yeah. Stephen, again, I, you know I have great respect for you, and clearly your, your, um, your investor, whoever your CIO is that, that sets these sort of this tone is, is, like I said, impressive, because I, if I were in the business, I would do exactly what you guys are doing. And yeah, what that nominal return is, it will create alpha vis-a-vis 98% of the other portfolios out there, I would venture guess. Without and I would say, Joe, that on the private side, as much as I think the public number is going to come down, I expect the private number will come down with 5%, 5%, whether it's public or private. So we're dealing in a different environment here. And I think whether you're in the private space, the public space, you're going to want to see a move much more quickly to earnings. Then you have and earnings will have a higher weighting than the business plan and well, i think yeah. this is one of the things that's going to screw us up on the on the ai related investments in the near term you know I, and i would take it just one additional layer of definition of again as usual see we tend to concur i would call it broad, more broadly defined to incorporate more of the private market sort of narrative is real value creation versus financialization right yes as public companies can create real value that's fundamental analysis but people have to know how to do fundamental analysis that people are where companies are actually creating value whether you're public or in the private markets versus just financialization, meaning free money, you're throwing it around and inflating, inflating valuations just because of the velocity of money. Um, anyway. I think it's easier to invest qualitatively than it is qualitatively and quantitatively. So we've, we're shifting and that shift has to occur. Yep. Other questions, Mark? Right, I'm gonna, I want to I put a pause on the love fest between Joe and Stephen for a second. Um, anyone disagree with Stephen? That would be a healthy debate. Michael Hammer, you wanted to At the time, talk I more negativity? I know. All right, Michael, go. Uh, you're trying to give me a reputation. I'm truly an optimist. Um, yeah, I think, Stephen, I, I agree with much of what you've said, but I think there's going to be problems with the federal government monetizing the debt as opposed to controlling spending. Um, what we Why do we see a potential government shutdown? Because there are uh, Republicans in the House demanding spending cuts, and they don't believe in monetization of the debt. 
They're looking for absolute reductions. And I think uh, this is a problem. And I think longer term, the squeeze, the interest on the debt is going to be a squeeze that you just can't monetize yourself out of. And one of the least efficient sectors out there is the government. So somehow government has to figure out how to become more efficient, gain a little bit in spending savings, um, and it's going to be tough. I agree with you that we will not be reducing spending. I agree with that. Therefore, and and we don't, and we we're not seeing the revenue growth for, uh, you know, the Fed's not taking as much taxes as they were either. So, I don't think they have. I don't think there's a choice to whether to monetize or not. Um, I think they, as a reserve currency, we can. Our political system right now will not. They won't. They won't cut spending. They don't. They, they won't cut. There's not that much they can cut on the discretionary on the non-discretionary side. And on the discretionary side, they can't they can't get to where they want to get to during an, an election period. So they may shut down the government, um, but I think they're going to think twice about doing it because they don't want to lose the election. So it's a real it's a real challenge that they have. It's it's interesting. We talk about the political divisiveness. Um, right now, you have the Republican Party fighting the Republican Party in the House, um, and. If they can get past that, then you can see how it might play out further. But um, you got to be really careful in both parties right now uh, for the next election. So they can't go too far. Um, they might try, but I don't think they're going to do that. So I, 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 did, I agree with you fully, though, that we're not going to cut. So Adam Blanco. Yes. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much. Great presentation. And um, I've got... To, by the way, I enjoyed the love fest. Yeah, that was quite informative. <laughs> um, the question is, first, what is what what do you see as the biggest threat that could derail this back to the new normal? That's my first question. Second question is the the uh, striking auto workers wanting thirty six percent. I think it's thirty six or forty six percent increase in wages. Who 40, will, 40. 40, okay. Who will pay for that? Where does that, where does that, who's, out of whose pocket does that come from? I'll answer the second one first. Equilibrium between labor and, and capital as I see it. But at the end of the day, who's going to pay for that? Those are my two questions. Can you give me the first question again? What is the biggest threat to derailing okay. our back to normal? situation of real interest rates away from zero interest rates what what's the biggest threat is it geopolitical is it labor costs what what is the biggest threat to that i don't think it's labor cost i think it would be i think it's uh either in uh the lack of growth and inflation combined or it's going to be geopolitical um I think those are the two areas you, that you would see it. And on the auto um, workers, they're looking for 40% increase uh, plus benefit increases going to a 32 hour work week um, because they expect that the uh, uh, 
the EVs will require, they not expect, the EVs require less parts, so they'll require less, less workers. And the answer who will pay for it is we will. Uh, these pests always end up in the consumer. Uh, the consumer ends up paying for inflation. Companies will pass on those costs uh, at some point uh, through to you. So um, I think that's the issue. I think the, the challenge, um, the auto, global auto industry has a real challenge. Uh, the U.S. auto industry has one too. Jim Farley from Ford says the proposal from the auto workers would be equivalent to a $300,000 a year job. Uh, for a four-day work week. Um, whether those numbers are right or in, how inflated they are or not, it, just for perspective, um, that's how big the increase is. I gave these numbers last week. I think currently um, the uh, auto workers would be averaging in the U.S., union workers would be averaging about $67 an hour. Um, that's proposed to double uh, in, in if they got everything they were asking for. And I think Tesla's at uh, around $48 an hour. So you can just get a sense of where the things are going. Um, I saw that Tesla's working on a new technology that would take um, one part of the car and, ins and instead of having 400 parts on the undercarriage, they would be creating one part that has to be installed. So you're starting to see those are the things that are creating the labor issues because how many people, you know, 400 parts to one is a lot fewer workers. So I think those are the issues that you're going to see. And this is where productivity really comes through. Um, but how do you offset that? And how do you deal with those labor problems? Um, I think those are going to be the things you see, but we'll all end up paying for it on them. Can, can, Joe, do you Thank mind you. taking a pause if you ask a question? Can I let Anna uh, ask a quick question? I, the only thing I was going to say, by the way, is I just posted a good piece from Ray Dalio getting interviewed in the All In podcast, and I put the YouTube video in the chat box that addresses some of this, some of these macro questions as well, and the political questions as well. And just watch it because it's a sobering answer. Yeah. Okay. So Thank first you. off, Anna. Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank Anna. you as as always. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yes. Awesome. yes. So uh, great insights. What I'm and a great would be great to see going back to the value creation, something I taught for 15 years in the corporate world. But then there is, I think there's a bigger difference because of the social marketing and the influencers kind of approach. And it's whoever is louder, whoever is more creative in marketing, there is a bigger difference in perceived value versus the actual value. And from your perspective, just having this macro view and all the experience and insights and expertise in the financial tools and levers that the government may or may not use, should there be a shift in how these levers operate or how they are? Because the things that worked in the past from a government decisions and initiatives and, and just the things that they would do to stimulate the economy may not be working anymore just because the consumer mentality and mindset and the whole dynamic is so different now. Yes, and I think I think you bring up a great point, Anna, and I think that's what the market's struggling with is yeah. they want the old playbook to work. Yeah. And the old playbook is first sign of stress, cut rates, and everyone's happy again, <laughs> right? And we extend the cycle and we extend and pretend. Um, and I think what's, and this has happened from the very start. When we first announced QE, everyone said we're going to have massive inflation and we did it, we got it 15 years later and a pandemic and a war after. Right. So we our expectations are based on what we've experienced in the past. And we've never experienced 
in a world that's been so artificially distorted by fiscal and monetary policy that we still struggle with that. And even the policymakers are struggling with it. So everyone wants you know, the 70s playbook or the 80s playbook or the 60s playbook. And the reality is the playbook for today has to be today's playbook for, for what the world we live in. And I think bring social media into it is an element of it. Like the, the mime stocks, you know, the movies coming out now on, you know, Dumb Money, whatever it was called. We went through all these distortions that really had nothing to do with the reality of the businesses. So I think we're getting back to how does business really work? Um, and that's going to be one of the drivers. But I also think we have to make adjustments for the fact that the global economy had a, a third of the total GDP thrown at it to stimulate the system. And that is unprecedented, uh, except maybe in, a, in World War II. So we're still dealing with excesses and distortions that are throwing us off. And I think that when the, when the market thinks about what the Fed's saying, they listen to it and then say, yes, but. And that's what the bankers did when they were going long on their portfolios. When the Fed said, we're going to keep rates higher for longer, they shouldn't have been lengthening their, their portfolios. They should have been bringing them in. They had these asset liability mismatches. The street keeps waiting for rates to be cut again. And they're going to be disappointed on that, we believe, too, unless there's a crisis. And then they'll be disappointed because there's a crisis. So I think that's the reality. So I, I think you're dead on. I think you have to think very differently about this environment. And there are just periods where you have to work through some unusual excesses and distortions and look past the norm. And I think yeah. that's going to be the challenge for people. And the consumer psychology, the buyer psychology at the consumer level in the B2, B2C space is just so different now because of just overwhelming, overcrowded social media impact on the buyer psychology. Well, I'm also fascinated to see how a uh, uh, couple six months out, how the Instacart and ARM uh, IPOs, and this was raised last week, Mark, I really wasn't thinking about the question when it was raised, but the impact of that on the private and public markets over the next several years, I think is going to be more important than we might have, uh, that I factored in last week when it was raised. So uh I think that's yeah, going to be a real telling sign of how the market clears these uh, these stocks and what it does for valuations on the private and public markets. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Other questions, comments? At risk of piling in on the love fest. I I consume a lot of stuff like this, even though I'm not in the public markets. And folks, I'm not sure you appreciate just how good the stuff that Steve has been putting out is. And I say good, not just because I like Steve, but uh, or Stephen, but because of the amount of stuff I actually process and consume. And uh, clearly his team does as well and distills it down in such a succinct way. And Stephen is such a good mouthpiece. So, you know, <clears throat> I would strongly recommend you embrace everything he says as the truth. But in the true scientific method, gather data to try and disprove that thesis, but adopt this thesis versus fight it. A lot of people fight it because it's an inconvenient truth that runs counter to what their own economic interests are, or their own narrative they've been putting forth. But this is an accurate narrative. Now, don't nobody's 100% right. And Stephen's very modest and always very candid about not, when he's not. But the, a, 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 more, a less painful way to adopt and embrace these unfortunate realities 
is to accept them as truth as he's laid it out, but keep gathering information to see where he's wrong because he's going to be wrong or his economists are going to be wrong somewhere. Everybody is. But this is as good as it gets. And, and it's, it's a scary future, without a doubt. I would just add one thing. I, would, I, I think we have to think about liquidity differently than we have for the last decade as well. And in the private space, in the private markets as well, because a lot of us didn't go into some of our private investments expecting to stay in as long as we've been in or as long as we will be in. Um, so I think that's another factor we have to really think about um, as we move forward is the, the value of liquidity. Um, you only need it when you need it, right? <laughs> and, and it only matters when you need it. Um, as people are finding out over the last year, and we'll find out even in more detail in the next year. So uh, I think those are things yeah. we really have to keep an eye on. Yeah. Apples and oranges. Uh, Mike Daly. Hey, guys, if it's okay to swing off way off on another target, but it's a limited time opportunity, the Inflation Reduction Act allowed the electronic vehicle tax credits to be flown through to investors, which didn't exist before 2022. So nowadays, if you buy in on a pool of cars, the equity investor gets 80% of his money back year one electric vehicle credits. It's only good for passive income. So if you have people that are in the public markets, they have big dividend numbers, large portfolios of dividend income, this is the right thing. Um, I'll put my email in the chat if anybody has a client, friend, or family that's interested. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Duncan? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask, um, it seems like um, the... I think Stephen's dead on on the interest rate thing. You know, the way to fight inflation is just leave rates here and have it be a, instead of sort of leaning into the wind for years, because there's a lot of inflationary trends that um, probably aren't coming compatible with monetary, combated with monetary policy. But I guess my question is for the private markets, you know, you just touched on it. I mean, there's 20 years of infrastructure in endowments and pension funds that have been set up for a somewhat predictable return of capital, you know, kind of a laddered portfolio, and that's all extended. And I don't know, I mean, I'm curious if anybody thinks we really, are we in the first inning, third inning, seventh inning? Where, where are we on that, if anybody has a view of, of the adjustment process that those institutions are gonna require? And those institutions require cash flow to operate. I don't. Joe or anybody else, Mark? Just as a, again, I don't know if you recall, wow. but one of, my, one of my board members runs the venture fund of funds practice for a uh, very large consulting firm where pension plans, sovereign wealth funds are their clients. So I'm vocalizing his assessments and observations. And to their credit, his credit and his firm's credit, they stopped taking venture engagements about three years ago. They wouldn't take money from a sovereign wealth fund that wanted them to build a venture portfolio because he saw the bubble coming and avoiding it. And so I guess the quick answer I would give is those folks that, that had the discipline of not getting caught up in the FOMO of the bubble that went up and is now collapsing are the smart money. 
you know, and the old adage of buy low, sell high. Well, the secondaries right now, there's there's portfolios getting dumped and the smart money is buying right now and investing right now because it should be viewed as a 10-year hold. But um, so I, I would say I don't think it's ubiquitous. CalPERS is going through its own growing pains. Also, I don't know if you all saw it, but the CIO decided to step aside. This rock star gal, Stephen, I don't know if you did. did you see that? The gal stepped aside yesterday. And uh, actually, the interim CIO, he's, he's, he's number two there. He has been for years as a buddy of mine. Actually, was going to hire him a number of years ago for, for reasons I won't bore you with. But um, so pension plans themselves aren't ubiquitous and the consultants working with them. But it, it really is. There is a lot of pension plans that had a FOMO mentality and foundations and others that have an actuarial cash flow and demand requirements as part of their investment uh, policy statements. But the dumb money was playing the FOMO game, and now they are very much pulling back, whether it's pension plans or individual investors. But there is smart, smart money out there that didn't play the game and is now being is now the buyer. I'm gonna, it's it's PE as well, it. isn't it? Yeah, PE is a different animal, uh, but yes. I mean, there's we could spend an hour on the cash flow issues around fiduciary-led endowment-type, foundation-type pools and the struggles with the cash flow issues of capital calls and how they got caught up in FOMO and compounded the, their negative cash flow issues because of the irregular nature of capital calls in both PE and venture. I've sent in on some, some serious um, discussions on that. But I guess it, it still comes back to the same thing is that if, if you got caught up and overcommitted because it was what everybody was doing, you're in a world of hurt. You got a liquidity issue. You got capital calls coming and or, you, or you're going to walk away from your, your interests to get out of those capital calls on the secondary market and take cents on the dollar. Right. Um, well, are we going to see some big pension fund blow up because of this? I mean, it's hard to believe nobody will mismanage it so badly that we aren't going to see a blow up. Def define blow up. Well, they just, you know, they're just going to be insolvent. You know, it's like, not, I don't you know, not to pick on anybody, but generically, you know, the Chicago police or whatever, we know there's all sorts of pension plans that are, that, that are, have been trying to make up for the, their overabundance of benefits by outperforming through some sort of hocus pocus in the investment world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, one day you walk in and you just don't have the money to pay the bills or to pay the pensioners. I mean, aren't we, you know, I just. I, I, I'm sort of feeling like that's the the event that we're going to see that could sort of make the Fed, you know, have to have to maybe make a move. But we saw pension bailouts in 0809. Cities were going bankrupt and pensions were going bankrupt. And so that's not unprecedented. And, and yeah, is that going to happen? Very well could. But Joe, from the from the private, from the alternative side, most of them don't have a big enough allocation do that for for just an uh, you know a private uh, a venture deal or anything to blow them up. They're they're better allocated. They're more diverse in their allocation. So it should what what happened in 08 was everything went to hell. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Duncan's talking about individual areas blowing up, and I, I just don't think their allocations are typically that big um, because of, they're usually consultant driven, and their consultants are more worried about keeping their job than getting returns. So they're going to guide them down to lower returns uh, or lower risk, typically. Not that they don't mess up in those areas sometimes, but that I think that's the, the protection for these guys better. And if Bill Deuchler's on the call, he may be able to shed some more light from the Florida Fire and Police or Tampa Fire and Police. 
yeah, that you're right, by the way. They're under all kinds of ventures by and large. So yeah. Private equity, they've got some good exposure with venture. They're relatively underexposed from an allocation standpoint. I agree with you. And I don't think they Bill has any returns in the hedge funds for some time. So Go ahead, Mark. Bill has a uh, a co a co-leader now from London, Ling Lu. She runs a $20 billion book of a hundred billion state, state, state street book. She loves our uh, events. She whacks on interest rates around the world. Just with, and she, she likes hearing about the domain expertise of the families, but we're gonna bring more of that uh, macro view. We wanna bring more institutional capital into this. And Duncan, we met somebody in London that you used to work for. I will figure that out. Jim and I were just comparing notes. Uh, when you were at Merrill, there was more than used one. To work for him. <laughs> I know. There, I there know. was more than one. <laughs> I know. Anything else, people, before we. Uh, oh, Andrew Voss. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, Andrew Randak, you're you're on camera first, so go ahead. Hey there, good to see everyone. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've been gone for a while. Um, there's a lot of talk on interest rates and supply of bonds and how there's a deluge and we're all drowning in all this stuff and rates are super high. Um, don't ever forget that there are lots of there is lots of demand for treasuries, agencies, mortgages. There's a reason why these things aren't trading above 8%, 7%, 6%. Uh, there are regulatory requirements that force institutions uh, into buying these things. They have no choice. Uh, in fact, a lot of investors now who are sitting in those seats are ecstatic that they're getting 5 6 7% in, uh, in these types of pieces of paper. So... Well, it's easy for us to, you know, point fingers and say there's too much paper and the interest costs are too high and that, you know, the government's screwing us and we're indebting our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. Um, there are lots of investors today who are really happy uh, to take, uh, you know, 5% treasury risk for a year. Uh, we're seeing a taxable equivalent yields in the 630s, 640s for investment grade munis here in America. Um, that is an excellent risk return uh trade-off uh we we Even went higher we in july uh and early august and we bought a whole bunch of this stuff so um we're, we're pretty happy with uh with the rates right now we don't think they're going to go down i agree with steven 100 i think they're going to be here for a while um but as long as these are the rates we're buyers and it's not an unhealthy level historically. That's the thing that people have to get their mind around. You know, these are these are normal long-term interest rates that we've had through most of the history here on an average. So this should be something that we should be looking at as getting back to where we want to be as opposed to fearing where we are. I think that's a mind shift that has to occur. You know, we did, and I, I don't remember if I mentioned this on our on the last call I participated in, but we, you know, we did a back of the envelope analysis. The old 60-40 that generated the seven percent return is now more like a 45-55. 
So with 45% equity, you can get a 7% return if you assume a 10% and 5% um, return on equities and fixed income. You don't have to go to 60 anymore. Uh, so you can be a lot, you can de-risk and still achieve your return objectives. Of course, these are real return objectives. So um, keep inflation in mind, uh, but still maybe add a percent, maybe you're at 50, 50 instead of 60, 40 uh, and you're doing pretty well. One other thing to keep in mind with, with debt now at $33 trillion in the US, Japan and China are still around just over a trillion dollars each. Or, and maybe even dropping one might, China might be dropping a little bit below, but their, their, their allocation isn't as high as it has been in the past. So the, the worry about them being overly disruptive is uh, you don't really have that worry with Japan, have it more with China, but it's very difficult at only a trillion of the 33, as opposed to when we were at, you know, you know, $15 trillion of debt and there were 1 trillion, it's a big difference there. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind is the ability for people to push it around is not the same as it was. Uh,